Hey everybody, welcome to the Beach Shack Podcast. This is your host, Tyler Buckingham, and I am super stoked today to have probably my best friend uh, in the whole wide world, Drew Westfall, uh, on the program today. Drew is, uh, in addition to being my best friend, one of my all-time beach buddies. We've spent countless hours on the shores of Southern California. Drew is a current coastal resident in the great city of New York. Uh, he is an owner and uh, chief operations officer of the Joko Cruise. So uh, when he's not uh, on the island of Manhattan, he is out at sea uh, with a bunch of nerds uh, showing him a great time. Drew, welcome to the Beach Shack. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that you acknowledge that we're friends because I certainly have no uh, amazing knowledge to share about beaches apart from having spent a good deal of time on them and taking people to them uh, as my now uh, profession. That's right. And you do it very well, Drew. Uh, so, you know, I, we were joking before we started recording that, you know, this is clearly not going to be a policy show. So uh, if you're if you're looking for a hard hitting policy show, I would go back an episode or two here. But we're just going to be chilling today and talking a little bit about our childhood memories. One of the things uh we used to spend just countless hours uh, in the wintertime, in the cold water, no wetsuit, bopping around, kayaking, uh, body surfing, you name it, we were doing it. And uh, that, those were just, Drew, those were some, and then, of course, eating our weight in In-N-Out Burger afterwards. My favorite part about that was your beach house was against, or like right on, situated on a seawall, and when the high tide came in, the waves would crash against the seawall and then you could ride them right back out. That's right. Uh, I know coastal armament is, uh, you know, up for debate these days. It seems like maybe they built that wall a little too close to the water, but it was sure fun to body surf. It's an eroding shoreline, Drew. And, uh, you know, when they built that wall, the beach was considerably further away. And uh, there was actually a dune system uh, where the house originally uh, is situated there was a dune system in front of it naturally that got eroded away and you know local lore is that all of that erosion that the beach was in a relatively stable uh condition until they built the santa barbara harbor uh which disrupted the sand cell and uh changed the the dynamics of the of the flow of sand now I have spoken with uh, several authorities on this subject, and I haven't, I haven't heard a direct. Uh, I don't know if that's scientifically provable, but I'll tell you that's what the locals think. Well, you know, you uh, I've been spending some time up in the beach community of Quantumtog, Rhode Island, lately, and they have a saying up there: "You lose the dunes, you lose the beach." So maybe it was uh, revenge from nature for losing those dunes. Possibly, possibly it was, and certainly uh, when you the minute you decide to armor and put that wall in, it exacerbates the erosion problem because you, this is what we were experiencing when when the wave would hit at high tide, the wave would hit the wall, and we would actually body surf the refraction wave or reflection wave, whatever it is, back out to sea. And then collide with another incoming wave and what would normally be just a spectacular water show, uh, water splashing, I don't know what, 20 feet in the air. 
and we we might even get a little lift off of it. It was a lot of fun, uh, if not a little dangerous out there in the riprap. No, it's a beautiful place to be, and it was kind of amazing to be on this gigantic concrete structure that seemed as though it had calmed the waves. I mean, I remember every once in a while in the storms, it would come by and like wash out the stairs um, going down to the beach for the for the folks who had the wooden stairwells as opposed to, I think there were a few like concrete stairwells built into there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, there was a lot of uh, controversy over the the make and uh, materials used in these access stairs from the seawall going down to the beach and uh in a in a like an el nino season it wouldn't be uncommon for a few of uh few of the houses there to lose their their stairs and uh they would of course be littered across the beach one of the big problems is once you lose these things, uh, there's, you know, I think technically the homeowner is responsible for like retrieving that, you know, you got to get a permit and pay someone to go out on the beach. And if you can find it anyway, you know, remove it. It's, it's, uh, litter, uh, but, uh, that rarely happened. And, uh, as, as happens on the beach, stuff gets swallowed up and just eroded away and decomposed until you just don't, you'll never find it. But, uh, those beaches were often littered with uh, pieces of seawalls and wood debris and stuff like that after a big storm. Just stuff, and all the other the other aspect here, Drew, is that stuff gets washed out to sea. You know, very naturally in California, it's one of the big controversies of our area. That uh, you know, when we do have big rain events, the sediment and debris gets stuck behind uh, between the upland and the ocean by infrastructure like the 101 freeway or the pacific coast highway or the railroad line that goes north south in california and uh that that would be the natural renourishment that the beach would uh naturally use to grow and with that debris being stuck on the other side the beaches have continued to erode yeah it's funny that we spent so much of our childhood at this kind of temporary bulwark against the changing climate um, where we saw all these signs of this change and the fact that like it kind of wasn't sustainable. Because I remember like when the high tide would come in and those waves were like bouncing off against the seawall, sometimes when the tide would go out, like before the sand got washed back up, it would have like cleared away a bunch of sand and you could see down to the rocks below. Right. Um, I mean, we were, you know, you're almost in the middle of the ocean some of the time, especially in those storms with the splashes coming up like 20 feet in the air. And it just seemed so cool when we were kids. seems like maybe they shouldn't have built it that way now that we're adults. No question. I mean, uh, goodness. I mean, obviously, my mom still has the place. Uh, It's in great shape. uh, But, Drew, you'll remember that it was completely destroyed uh, in 2003, I believe, 2004, uh, an El Nino season not from wave action kind of coming over the seawall. The seawall is quite stout and, uh, I don't, you know, it's, it, that thing is built like a tank, but the, the threat came from the upland. It was the debris and mud and sediment flowing down from, uh, those, that kind of hillside just on the other side of the one one freeway that, uh, clogged up the culverts underneath the, 
the freeway, the railroad tracks, and then the finally the last barrier is the Pacific Coast Highway. And with those culverts plugged, uh, the stuff just went straight over the highway, straight over the uh, railroad tracks, and straight over Pacific Coast Highway right into the living room of the beach house. Um, but Drew, you'll remember that place. That was an original 1930s little house. Do you remember how uh, thin the walls were and all the electricity was, you know, wired on the outside of the walls? There was no insulation. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a great little beach house. And, and it's funny that it lasted for so long because, you know, every year you would see up and down that piece of coastline, like a different house that had gotten destroyed by chance. Yeah. Seemingly. Well, it's one of the most armored stretches of shoreline in California, uh, the Ventura County coast. And, um, actually the reason why this particular podcast is named the beach shack is in homage to this original beach shack, uh, which I, you know, I think really harkens back to an era where, uh, certainly coastal real estate was more affordable. Um, and, uh, there was, you know, for example, uh, our old place where we were drew, uh, that was built by an oil guy, you know, a blue collar dude who worked out in the oil fields, probably out in Santa Paula. And those are the guys that built the old houses in the thirties. Uh, it, they were, uh, certainly not living a terrible life. They were doing well. Ventura County had a great oil supply, but the beach was, uh, a place to cool off. This was pre air conditioning as you, as we know, in the summertime, in the valleys of Southern California, it's it's an oven. It's a hundred degrees. Yeah, it gets a little hot in it there. It gets quite hot, and uh, the idea of escaping to the shore was is just as popular today as it was then. In fact, it might have been even more popular then because it was the only escape. Uh, so these guys would go out there and they built these primitive little shacks with no bathrooms. Uh, uh, there's no running water. I mean, you'd you'd bring in jerry cans of water uh, in in this book that uh, I have that tells the history of the area. Uh, some guys built in ground like ice boxes, you know, where you would kind of an old school method of keeping your your produce cool where you'd uh, put a big block of ice in a hole in the ground yep. and then you'd put a cooler in that. And uh, that way you'd you could keep your, uh, your, your food there for a few days, but it was, you know, compared to the modern amenities of the shoreline where these are, uh, you know, glamorous homes that are, uh, have every amenity imaginable. In fact, it's not uncommon to see, you know, kids hanging out in the house playing video games at the beach. You know, they're not even out in the, in the beach, in the water. Or in the swimming pool, which is a beach house amenity I've never understood. Uh, yeah, totally. More trouble than it's worth. You're going to get all that sand in there. It's uh, that's not very smart. Mm-hmm. Well, Drew, let's. Uh, I, while we have you on the show, uh, I I do want to touch on one uh, event that you have personal experience with, and you really helped me understand. But uh, take a couple minutes and walk our audience through what it was like to be a, a resident in New York. I believe you were living in Manhattan at the time when Sandy uh, struck the city. Yeah. Well, so is that, was it 2012 when it came through? I think that's 2013, right. 2012. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, 
I had the experience of a 24, 25 year old with Sandy. So there wasn't a lot in the way of extensive preparation on my part. We, at the time I was living in a 390 square foot, three bedroom um, on Sixth uh, Street on the Lower East Side um, between avenues B and C. So pretty close to the river. Um, not the worst flood zone, but the second worst. Um, but we didn't really know how bad it could get, especially because the previous year, Hurricane Irene had come through and Bloomberg, the then mayor, had made a huge stink about how everyone needed to get ready and buy water and buy food. And I, you know, I ended up staying out in Brooklyn for that. Um, and we like filled the tub with water and followed all the advice. Um, and ultimately absolutely nothing happened. So for this one, we, I guess we knew what was going lulled on. into had, complacency a little bit. Oh, we were absolutely lulled into complacency. We, uh, we watched a bunch of movies, um, and uh, then in the middle of coming to America, the <laughs> power went out and we saw the, the power plant for our neighborhoods on 14th Street um, on Avenue C. So not quite line of sight, or I mean like sort of line of sight, like you can, you can see the smokestacks over the building, but we saw this like giant electrical cloud, uh, like arc as it shorted out. Um, and most of Manhattan's power shorted out at that time, south of something like 50th Street, 50th, wow. 50th Street. Um, so we saw that, the movie was off, and then we realized that the only preparation that we had made that evening was to roll all of our weed into joints, and that we hadn't even bought candles. Wow. Um, so we went, my upstairs neighbor, Eileen, who was an actual grown-up at the time, uh, gave us one candle um and so we you know used that to see around the apartment and then we went downstairs to sort of check out the damage um and so the way the east village of manhattan is set up basically there's uh avenue d and then a little bit of road to the east and the east river and then going west it goes dcba one two three four five six seven eight nine ten uh, across Manhattan going east to west. Um, and, and what happened was Avenue C was underwater um, and cars were floating down it. And Avenue B was dry. And normally, what's so funny living in the city, because, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't like waves were coming through. It was just this storm surge. Um, it wasn't even, at first, raining all that much. Um, but we were in the middle between B and C. So, the place to our right place a little bit further east its basement flooded um that meant that their boiler went out because all the buildings are steam heated with boilers down in the basement um and the boilers can have like one of the most expensive parts of the building so like their their boiler went out they were screwed um I, on i think to this day on sixth street there's still like they have these trucks with boilers inside them that like the city brought in to be like emergency boilers after Sandy set up. Wow. Where ours, like, you know, the, the water came up to the sidewalk level and was on the sidewalk, but never came into the basement of the building. 
Um, and it was totally fine. And there's a little wine bar on the first floor. Um, and when we went outside to kind of check out the situation on the avenue, you know, there's like, I remember, you know, like the rain coming down, police siren or, you know, like the police lights kind of rotating nearby, um, bumming a cigarette from my neighbor and like looking out and noticing that the little bar was halfway, the wine bar was halfway open. I sound like a real degenerate, which is an <laughs> myself in my early 20s living in the East Village. A little, a little bit of the wine bar was open. So we go in and meet one of our neighbors who's the owner who makes the call for some reason that like, oh, well, we're, we can't, this wine's going to go bad if it doesn't stay cold, which I think is inaccurate. So we ended up drinking a bunch of white wine by candlelight inside this little um, restaurant uh, that we all enjoyed and went to regularly. Um, and then at some point, I guess, went to sleep after that, woke up, and everybody then went about having their own hurricane, which for people in my neighborhood in Manhattan was oftentimes a bit of a hurricane, was, was what we jokingly called it. I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive to the people in other boroughs and other parts of the city who had a, a really, really tough time. Um, but yeah, my buddy Sam lived up on the 20th Street in uh, a 20-story building on the 10th floor. And so there was no power and no water up there because they needed electric pumps to pump the water up. Wow. Whereas, like, my building had water because I think we had a water tower. Right. Um, that was that was still fine. Um, or maybe, maybe like, the city's water pressure goes up, up to six floors or something. Um, <laughs> I, unclear to me how that, how that works. Yeah. Um, but he didn't have water, which you need. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have water. All their food rotted, and they had to hike up and down ten flights. Wow. And, and there, you know, throughout the city, there were these things, there were these high-rises, people... Like, you know, old ladies stuck up in their apartments who can't get downstairs. Right. Um, but I guess before this all happened, before any of us went home the next day, we realized, like, shit, we're going to need, um, like, phone service to tell our families that we're okay. Um, so, you know, it's like noon. By the time we get over our hangovers, we walk out into New York and we have no cell phone. We have no communication. And we just kind of start walking through the streets of Manhattan, which is still running because it's Manhattan. You know, like little did we know that like late that that night, the National Guard had been downtown pumping out the subway stations so that they could open the market. Um, it was closed for one day, I think. Ultimately, yeah. Which, when you compare with what happened in Katrina, it's crazy. Um, we went out and we started just kind of listening, like asking people like where there was power in the city. And like, there were some people said like, basically everyone said like, go uptown. Um, so we just started walking uptown and eventually around 55th street, like got to the area of the city that was turned on and went into some pharmacy and everyone had like set up charging stations around all the power outlets in the store with all these, um, extension cords and surge protectors and stuff. So, we kind of sat in there and got got some juice, and then and yeah, I don't know if it's only New York in a disaster, but kind of everybody was sort of partying because there was nothing else to do. So it was like there was the pharmacy where everyone was charging up, and then there was a bar, 
um, where everyone who'd made the hike was. Um, and I can't remember if we stopped there or not, but judging by the rest of this story, I bet we did. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> and I mean, you know, the, the, the story goes on from there. Um, a lot, like we ended up decamping to Brooklyn um, to, to higher ground and to my business partner's actual like house where it was um, dry and there was power. But I had a friend who stayed downtown for the whole week. The power was out um, and things got really weird for them. They, they like went to the bodega and got discount melted Ben and Jerry's and then drank it. Um, <laughs> and that was day one. And then they stayed, they stayed in the, I think they started referring to their offices as the well, where they would go with their battery rechargeable things and then bring back their battery stuff. So all they had was like one battery powered light and they would sit in the dark. Um, and they had these Star Trek Pez dispensers and they would reenact episodes of Star Trek with the Star Trek Pez dispensers. Uh, <laughs> it sounded like a fun time when I heard about it. I was like, shit, I'm so bummed I went to Brooklyn. I should have gone to live in this dark apartment with you idiots. Well, I, I will say this. I mean, I, whether it's people telling 9-11 stories, Sandy stories, uh, New Yorkers really kind of come together uh, during these, you know, life, I'm going to say like life altering, meaning the, the rhythm of the city is changed by it, but like it, it goes on, you know? Um, and I remember, was it you drew that was telling me about, uh, the bars kind of acting like the bank, like, uh, if you needed cash, cause of course I think you got to do everything cash, right? You're, you're, you can't pay with a card. There's no electricity. Yeah, well, there were there were a lot of great little stories. I mean, like, so as far as like, you know, businesses that let us down, all the chain stores where the power was out closed their doors because they didn't want to be open. Whereas the bodega on the corner stayed open by candlelight 24-7 um, the entire time and sold candles. A bunch of people stole stuff. Um, but, you know. I think in part because it was a local business and the people who worked in that bodega were literally trapped there and couldn't make it home to Queens. Like, and you know, they, they own that shop. They're a part of the neighborhood. They were like a lifeline to us and especially who had us who had no candles. Um, but it was amazing to walk through the lower East side and see on like first and second Avenue, which normally lots of traffic, Buddy, just kind of intuiting what the rules are to drive with no traffic lights. Yeah. Um, and it was surprisingly orderly. Yeah. Um, you know, eventually they brought cops down, but it was orderly even when there weren't cops. And they couldn't have a cop at every intersection even if they wanted to, I don't think. Um, and same thing with food. You know, you saw all of these local people who were giving away food. And, and in general, you know, it's like that people want to share the information they have so that their neighbors can like get through it. I mean, the 9-11 story that I heard, um, one of my friends was like on the train headed down um, to downtown, and all of a sudden the train stops, and then the train starts going backward, eventually spits her out up on 14th Street, and she gets out, and like all the traffic has stopped, all the cars have pulled over, and all the cars have opened their doors and tuned their radio to the same frequency. So all of a sudden, the entire area, like blocks and blocks and blocks, is all listening to the radio because everybody needs to know. Right. Um, 
and there's definitely like a camaraderie with other people in the city because you know what they're going through. I mean, like, you know, you see something horrifying on the subway and like anybody who is watching it with you is, is your brother in that for sure. And for sure. Catch their eyes. But it's also just the, um, the base level of cooperation in a city like New York is already very high, despite the reputation of it being kind of a cold hearted city in order to for that city to exist with the density you know that it has the population density that it has the innate level of uh communal uh understanding and respect and just kind of you know tolerance for other people is already real high uh so when yeah. you when you you add a major disaster like that it's almost like you've got the perfect mix for a party uh, you've got, you've got, yeah. you've got a bunch of people who are already really good at, uh, and now they don't have to go to work. They, they don't, they, yeah. you know, work has been canceled. So it's a snow. Well, and also as like, as a little, as a little person, which like, you know, the apartment dwellers, such as myself kind of are, what are you really going to do? You know, like you, yeah. there's, there's not much that you can do. Um, if you know, you have a little, a little tiny spot that's yours it's not wet <laughs> right. and there's nothing, there's nothing much else that you can do in the rest of the city. Um, but I will say that I think that the, I'm a California boy and, and New York's full of, of rage. Um, but the other thing is that I think a lot of the like rep that New York gets from the outside is that basically New Yorkers are angry at tourists for not understanding all the implicit agreements that are necessary in order to operate here. For example, like, don't take up the whole sidewalk. Yeah. Um, don't walk there. Uh, get out of the way when you're in. Like a lot of people who are not from New York don't know how to stand in the line. And like, is that New York's problem that we're pissed, or is it the person who doesn't know how to stand in the line? I, the we may never know. Uh, it's a chicken and egg situation. But I'll tell you one thing: New Yorkers will continue to uh, be annoyed by the tourists, Drew. That's not going away. Um, one story you told me that I would love for you to uh, share is the story of the uh, jets, the jet skier who was like so cruising totally the street. <laughs> totally apocryphal. I heard it. I'm I, I'm I'm a regular up at the 10th Street uh, baths, and uh, my buddy David, who works there, was telling me about a YouTube video he saw. Shout out to the baths. Find. Shout out to the best. Um, yeah, shout out to the shout out to the 10th, 10th Street Schwitz. It's a great place to get some heat. Um, their water bill must be insane. Um, but he was telling me this story about a YouTube video, which I haven't seen. But, uh, you know, on Avenue C or Avenue D, cars were floating down the street. Um, wow. And apparently some neighborhood person had his jet ski with him attached to his car. Um, and this doesn't seem impossible, but it doesn't seem incredibly likely. And he realized that that day was his day to do a, a small act of, of heroism that is almost never called for. Um, and that was to ride the jet ski around Avenue C with a baseball bat and bash in the windows of floating cars so that they would sink and not run into the buildings and storefronts. Wow. Uh, see, I love so if that. If that actually happened and anybody has a has a link to it, you know, 
Well, I've done it a lot. I I did do some research and uh, some you know half-assed internet research, and what I've determined is that there was in fact a jet skier out uh, that was well tell you know the on television but i don't i can't confirm that they were like going down the streets of new york with a baseball bat smashing went like no discuss no discussion of what they were doing out there or if they were like going down the streets and i can't i can't find footage of that but you know it was 2012 drew uh cell phones it was like like a, a slightly different era uh different you know social media era uh different um you know, Instagram hadn't really taken, it wasn't quite the vi- the social media video era that it is today, uh, where yeah. I'm sure we would have had um, footage of such a feat. But, you know, that, that brings me to a point. And one of the, we were actually talking uh, on our flagship show with the director of the National Hurricane Center, Ken Graham, about the importance of social media in these disasters. And um, I, I'm, we both, of course, went through the Thomas Fire, which surrounded Ojai, the town that we're from. Um, and the way that we really followed that was through social media. At least that's the way I followed it. And I found it to be tremendously confusing because there's like no sense of time. Things are coming through your news feed. And, you know, it could be two days old. It could be 20 minutes old. You just don't know. And they're saying, hey, a, pi- a fire popped up here. Well, if that happened 20 minutes ago... That could really, that's like important information. But if it's two days old and like the fire's out, who cares? And with these uh, hurricane disasters and flooding disasters in particular, you can imagine how that would be if people are using social media to get information that they're then going to turn into their action plan. Like, oh, that road's flooded or that subway uh, station is flooded. I'm going to go to a different one. And they it, they might funnel into the wrong area or maybe, you know, that kind of misinformation uh, or even disinformation, I'd go as far to say, especially with the timeline thing, is uh, is really dangerous. And it's something that Ken was pointing out. And do you have any, what was the state of social media or your social media at that time? I don't know. I mean, I could scroll through my Twitter. I would imagine I posted something glib just to yeah. kind of go with my being a, a garbage person with that in that age. But um, I don't think you were that bad. I don't really remember using social media at all. Because, well, you know, the other thing, the thing that's great about New York is like if shit's really going down, there's like pretty solid social media in the form of talking to all the people who are going to be in the street. Like, right. Go down, go down to the road and see who's there. Um, cause everybody's got an idea and they've all heard stuff, but you know, I think, I think that part of it is that like the human brain is better able to recognize that something that some stranger is telling them might be BS than like a list of written facts. Like it, either, either it's that our social norms haven't caught up to it. Um, or just that there's more information to draw. on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely think like with, when you're when you're talking to a person, they're telling you what they heard. You know that is going to play on all your social instincts, and you're going to know because you've been told hearsay by people all the time. Whereas a lot of like social media misinformation, usually out of eyeshot, like it doesn't directly apply to you, and it's only in these cases where like it's very important that you know that what you're hearing on social media is accurate that you start to realize like oh my god this is 
like drinking from the fire hose um is hurting my stomach and i'm thirsty yes <laughs> that's a that's a that's a really excellent point and uh i think you're totally right that's some good social commentary and one of the things that like from a you know that director graham talks about is uh you know he's hired a group a crew a department of uh like sociologists and like almost psychologists to try to figure out how they can better message and communicate uh, emergency information obviously not every you know their their job to communicate what's going on with the storm is, is not does not change whether or not the storm is a category five or a category one. And as he pointed out on our show, category ones kill a hell of a lot of people too. Um, so basing it on, you know, the getting people to like understand what the expectations are. And you were actually talking about this, uh, with Sandy, like your expectations were pretty low to kick it off because the previous, experience was that hey the thing will pass it'll blow through they're you know basically they're crying wolf a little bit here with the with the talk of the big storm you know well i think that's a a hazard with government in general you know the kind of corporate tactic of always covering your ass by saying the most conservative thing immediately erodes your credibility and like with uh, Irene in the immediate rear view for New Yorkers, where they made a whole bunch of fuss, I've got to imagine that few people prepared um, for Sandy, especially. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if the city really knew how bad it could be, because, I mean, like there are there are parts of Sandy there, there are parts of the damage from Sandy that are still unrepaired. Yeah. And I want to talk about that. Um uh, one of the things, you know, I've, I've spent a little time in New York, Drew happily, uh, visiting you some of the time. And, uh, I've been out to, uh, Coney Island and the, I know that they've, they had to re- completely rebuild the, the boardwalk out there is my understanding. Uh, and it looks great. Um, and for the, yeah, AS- I was out there this weekend. Actually. Oh, you yeah. were. Okay, good. I want to check in on that. I, uh, and I've been, uh, for our, our listening audience, uh, I was at the ASBPA conference in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, uh, which was, New Jersey was heavily impacted, of course, by Sandy as well. We don't want to leave them out. But um, that's all been, there's been a lot of federal dollars spent and local dollars spent to uh, shore up these uh you know, beaches primarily and bay systems so that they can, uh, withstand a storm. It is the front line of defense and New York is no different. Uh, interesting though, that this, you know, the, perhaps the most dense iconic American city is on a little Island. Um, and we don't think about that. So you, you are a good California boy. You get out to the coast. Let's, let, we're bringing it to the present now. We're bringing it to the present. So I'm curious to know kind of what your assessment of the current state of the New York City shorelines is. Well, I do have just a recent New York City shoreline tidbit. Yeah, um, let's go. Get the scoop. It's so easy to forget that, you know, I mean, the East River is a tidal estuary and I can walk to it in 10 minutes, but I never think about how I'm on the water. Normally getting out to the beach does take a couple hours on the subway, but I recently had, uh, to, I had to take a car through Manhattan 
at 5 a.m. for work um, and drove through the Lower East Side where I still live, which is a major kind of party area. And a fantastic fact about the Lower East Side at 5 a.m., which I didn't know, is that it's full of seagulls. Wow. And they are eating all the French fries and falafels and stuff from the night before. Um, and it's actually really quite beautiful because, it, you know, it's like the early morning light and <laughs> it's dead quiet in the city. And the city's full of these avian, these, these like marine birds that you would never, you would never expect to see. I mean, you don't, they, I think that something about their size and maneuverability um, and feelings about people mean that they, they never come down during the day when they when there's actually anybody out. Yeah. Well, and they're, I suspect that they're just, you know, they figured this out obviously day after day, they know what's up. Like this has got to yeah. be built into their routine by this point, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, from the number of them and the amount of food that you could see them congregated around, it is good eating. I mean, I would imagine that they probably get up, eat their fill and they don't have that much left to do in terms of, getting their nutrition for the day. Well, Drew, uh, with that, I want to uh, ask you if you have any final thoughts, any concluders for the show today. Concluders, huh? Wow. That's, this, is, this is the hardest question I've been asked. I know. Um, and it's not that hard. So thanks for going easy on me. Um, well, here, think about that, and while you're thinking about that, tell everyone a little bit about the Joko Cruise, how they can find out about it, and uh, uh, buy a ticket if they want to come cruise with cruise with you. Well, the Joko Cruise, spelled J-O-C-O Cruise, uh, you can visit jokocruise.com, find out more about it. It is a seven-day voyage this year. Uh, in 2020, we'll be sailing March 7th out of Fort Lauderdale on Holland America's MS New Amsterdam. And on that seven day trip, we're gonna make three port stops, but even better, every night on the main stage, we'll have music and comedy with a decidedly nerdy bent. We've got a 24 seven tabletop gaming room with over an actual physical ton of games inside and a cardboard concierge program to pair you with games that are fun for you to play. We've got a crafting room and over 600 hours of guest programmed events where the Sea Monkeys, the attendees on the cruise, actually set up their own meetups, drink ups. Uh, there was a lock picking workshop last year. Um, and uh, we also have, along with performances on the main stage, uh, little panels with New York Times best selling fantasy and sci fi authors, as well as uh, other luminaries in this very broad conception of nerve that we've come up with and uh if you want to learn more about it uh google it up and find that new york times uh article uh all about the cruise it's they had an amazing year this coming year is going to be their 10th one uh so this is the year to go i think yeah it's our 10 anniversary actually so <laughs> so, should, uh, so i've got to go this year it. This is me, yeah. you know, Drew has been giving me the, uh, the nudge to get on board, I think, you know, nine years now. So I think I'm due to get on. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's always another one, but, uh, well, not to undercut any sense of urgency. Well, Drew, uh, I don't, I'm going to 
I'm going to give you one last shot for your concluder, but before I'm going to let you think about it before, uh, before I let you go, I just want everyone to know that Drew is a, uh, will be back on, on this show. He's one of my favorite people to talk to and bounce ideas off of. He's got, uh, obviously a, a tremendous background of experience and, uh, just an all around interesting guy. And I'm stoked to share his, uh, thoughts with all of you and uh, we'll have him on again at some point in the future and Drew with that give me your conclu- concluder my concluder is uh, about the animated television series uh, Neo Yokio about a future New York uh, where New York remains populated but there is uh, a part of the city is the sea below 14th street where people live in amphibious houses where the bottom few stories are underground and uh it does seem like with the amount of sea level rise we'll be expecting some very iconic parts of new york are going to be partly submerged and that's right i wonder what we're going to do about it and i what i wonder most is whether we couldn't just raise like you know (laughs) i mean i don't know you get eminent domain just the bottom story of all of downtown New York and just pave over it and like <laughs> make the whole thing a story higher. Yeah. Seems like that would solve a lot of the problem. And then we wouldn't have to do any of these complicated, like why, why build a wall around it when you can just build the whole thing up? I, I this is, I, and I am a very uninformed person about this, but that, that's my thought. I think we got well. to just, Listen, you're, you are, we, I love, you can, are, are, everyone who's listening can tell that you're obviously a creative thinker. <laughs> um, we, at, one of the things that we have on our to-do list on our kind of programming for this summer is to learn more about the uh, plan in New York to uh, secure the city and uh, against, pr- principally against uh, a flood coming from some sort of sandy like storm and um the the planning effort is already well underway it's a fascinating time in our history where the pendulum is has has swung from being a hard armament just look at the shoreline drew of new york i mean you know you don't you don't have to be a geologist to know that that's not a natural shoreline you know there has been fill it's a straight line <laughs> it's virtually it's like right angles and straight lines it's, it's completely and entirely engineered and yeah, very um, little about new york remains natural <laughs> as a as a as a golden rule uh, even the parks are are fantastically uh, engineered but uh the the plan that is in the works is a exam an example of what we're seeing out of uh, the Army Corps of Engineers these days, which is a combo of uh, using hard infrastructure uh, walls and whatnot, kind of buried in what we'd call like soft infrastructure and natural uh, barriers like uh, wetlands and and you know sand dunes and things like that and. Uh, I do believe that they are proposing build, doing something along those lines uh, on the south, the southern uh, tip of Manhattan. Um, but uh, you know, still in the early phases of planning. Uh, I believe there's a gate, like some sort of dike, planned for out uh, at the mouth of the harbor. Um, so um, it, this is all still very early, but we will be following it. And I would love to circle back with you, Drew, and. Uh, when we have more 
uh, information, get your thoughts as to what that would mean for the city. Obviously, depending on yeah. where these... Getting back to Dutch roots, really. <laughs> exactly, getting right back to it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Drew Westfall uh, of the great city of New York, sharing his Sandy stories with us. Uh, my dear friend, Drew, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, JoeCoCruise.com. <laughs>